you're turning your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll read from verse 15. I've been taking you through this section, this prayer. We're going to conclude it, God willing, this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. This is the word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things for the, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As we look at verses 22 and 23, those last two verses, we're going to emphasize the word church Everything exists for the church. You wouldn't believe it if you looked at our society today, would you? Not just here, but so many places people despise the Christian church. Hypocritical, full of words, but not full of action. Those who come into this country not really knowing what it's like, they must be shocked by the fewness of the people who attend the churches they go to. Weekly, buildings close, don't they? Church buildings are taken over and become warehouses and garages and even other places of worship, mosques, for example. Then we can talk about the scandals, the sex scandals that have been there in professing Christian churches. Well, you may say, well, let's go to uh, Africa. There the church is growing. People say that's the, the powerhouse of the church for the future. I hope it's true. But we who know Africa, for example, and some of you know other parts of the world, of course, we know there's much formality there. There's a great emphasis on entertainment 
on worldly health and wealth. That's a pretty depressing beginning to a sermon, isn't it? Uh, I wish it wasn't true. And yet the Bible tells us that the church, as we have it there in verse 22, the church is the very centre of all that God does in all of creation. May God help us to grasp that this morning by faith. God doesn't act for the sake of America or China. He doesn't act for the United Nations that, of course, seeks to rule the world with its own agenda. But it's the church that God loved. And as this letter is going to say in chapter 5, that Christ died for. It's the church that's going to be with him in glory. So, my friends, it's so vital for you this morning to know what the church is. That's centred in God's purposes and to know whether you are part of that church which God and Christ at centre their work in. I've got three things to tell you from Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. My, my task, my privilege is to tell you what does the word of God say? So you leave here knowing this is the truth. First of all, we learn that Christ rules over all things. And God he put all things under his feet. The context that we read is Paul praying, giving thanks for these Ephesians, this church, and praying three specific things for them because these are absolutely vital for Christian living. You need to know the hope to which he has called you. Verse 18. You need to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Verse 19. You need to know the immeasurable greatness of his power that's at work in us believers. And that prayer and its results continue right through verses 22 and 23. The power that's at work in us who believe by the grace of God is nothing less than the resurrection and exaltation power of Christ that's put him now, as we read, at the right hand of God. But the language that's used there is above all rule. And really, Paul's just repeating himself now, isn't he? Rule, authority, power and dominion. You'd be hard-pressed to make a hard and fast division between those four words. But it's the emphasis of everything. And he's far above that. 
And above every name, every, every person, every uh, great person, he's far above, and not only now in this age, but even in the age to come. And so now we read that he's put all things under his feet. You know, it's possible for someone to be raised to a position of privilege and authority and forget where he's come from. I think this is sometimes said about uh, members of parliament, isn't it, at Westminster. Once they get elected and they come to the, uh, the metropolis of London and enjoy uh, life and, and privilege there, they forget the constituents. Uh, whether that's true or not, uh, it doesn't really matter. But Christ has not done that. He is active because he's putting and uh, all things are put under his feet. It's actually a process uh, as you read the rest of the Bible. Literally, it means all things are submitted to him. Sometimes you read in the Old Testament, for example, in Joshua chapter 10, when the people under Joshua were victorious over five Canaanite kings, Joshua literally came and put his foot on the neck of those kings as they laid on the ground to show uh, a defeat and total submission. And so when it's saying he's put all things under his feet, then Christ has been so exalted that every enemy submits to him. And if you read 1 Corinthians uh, 15, the last enemy is death. And Christ will be seen to have the triumph over it. Of course, he's already triumphed over death in his own resurrection. There are other parts of the Bible who talk about this. For example, uh, Psalm 110, uh, where uh, God is uh, putting everything under the Lord's feet and that's quoted in 1 Corinthians 15. This is quite a, a common idea then. Let's, let's get hold of it. That Christ rules everything. Nothing and no one is able to successfully resist him. None can say, I don't want you to rule over me. Although they have tried. He is and will triumph. How foolish to fight against the Lord Christ. The Roman emperors tried, didn't they, for those first uh, three centuries uh, as the church was being formed. Oh, they tried. There were persecutions. There were threats. There were... Uh, aims to get rid of the, the scriptures. I don't know if you've read 
Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a book one should read. And he deals there with the first, uh, in his first section, the ten uh, sort of general persecutions in the Roman Empire. Glorious stories of, of martyrs. But what they tried, the might of the Roman Empire that could conquer uh, every other uh, nation, it seems, couldn't conquer the church. I think it's, as I looked into it, I think it's an apocryphal story. But uh, there was an emperor in the uh, 4th century called Julian the Apostate who tried to bring uh, the Roman Empire back under the traditional religion. But at the end, he had to confess. So the story goes. It doesn't matter, it's not true. But so the story goes. He says, oh, you Galilean, Jesus, you have conquered. He couldn't do that. Secondly, having seen that Christ rules over everything, let us grasp this, that Christ rules for the sake of the church. Given him as head over all things, head over all things to the church. And in fact, the emphasis is there is on the him. It's he to whom God has given that. It's he who has appointed uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. This one who's just been described as so exalted, incomparably exalted. It's actually a little paradoxical, isn't it? That the one who has everything under his feet has been given it as God's uh, gracious gift. Here you have then the universal headship of Christ, his head over all things. Don't think here of what we often think of, the head-body relationship. Uh, this head simply is a, a word describing absolute rule. You're the, you're the head of government, we might say. In, in Colossians, which is very much like Ephesians, uh, Paul uh, talks in chapter 2 and verse 10, and he says, he's the head of all rule and authority. My friends, it's all. This includes evil as well as good powers. Today, there's a lot of fear of evil powers, and rightly so. I think it's increasing here, certainly in other parts of the world, uh, like uh, Africa, where there's a much, much more openness to the spiritual world. There's so much talk of evil spirits, a generational curses. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but it's uh, a pretty common teaching. And it really brings one into bondage if I'm cursed because of generations past 
or I build a city uh, on top of an ancient burial site. Uh, Christ is head over all of those things. They're not independent of him. But he's not only head over them all, it's to the church or it's to the advantage of and for the benefit of the church. This is what I want us to really rejoice in and be confident in this morning. Go and ask an athlete, why are you getting up every morning at five o'clock and running up and down the hills? Why do you have such a strict diet? Why do you restrict your, your social life? Well, you know what the answer is going to be, isn't it? I want to win the race. His or her whole life is now directed with one aim, I must be the winner. If you could ask God the same question, God, why are you doing this? You know what the answer would be now, don't you? I mean, there are many answers, but in the context of Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, this is the reply. I'm doing it for my beloved church. God, why, why did you choose Abraham? Why did you say, come out of her and go to the place that I'll show you? This is the answer. I want to bless all the families of the, of the earth, which we know means I want to bring a people for myself out of all the different families of the earth. Ask God, why did you get the brothers of Joseph to sell him into Egypt, into slavery, and put him into prison there? What a wicked thing that was, wasn't it? But we know the answer. It was that many people, and especially Jacob and his family, might be preserved alive as a remnant because of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why was Saul of Tarsus a witness to the stoning of Stephen, the one we call the first Christian martyr? It was so that his conscience would be pricked by what he saw and heard from Stephen. And although he doubled his efforts in persecution all the while, uh, it's called the goads are pricking him because he begins to know what the truth is and it results in his salvation for the benefit of the church. Why was there a general persecution after Stephen's death? I mean, killing Stephen was bad enough, wasn't it, now to, to, to go after the whole church? Why? Oh... That meant the Christians left Jerusalem. And as they left, they started evangelizing, we read. And they went far and wide. And some of them, by the time you get to chapter 11 of Acts, some of them came to Antioch. And for the first time, non-Jews heard the gospel and were saved. 
It was God's purpose for the building of the church. Obviously, I'm just picking one or two things which seem so terrible, don't they? As if, how can they be of any benefit? But they are for benefit. Why did Paul end up in prison in Rome? I mean, why silence? The, may we call him uh, the greatest preacher uh, whom God had so much used to plant churches in many places of the empire, and now you're incarcerating him. Why? Well, read Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Through Paul being in prison in Rome, having appealed to Caesar, the gospel has now come even into Caesar's household. How else, did it, how else does it get there? Except somebody being in prison in Rome. Let's ask a far more important question. Why did Christ come from heaven to suffer and to die in utter shame, in agony on a Roman cross? Well, you know the answer to that one, don't you? The greatest evil that was done was preeminently for the good of the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Ephesians 5, verse 25. This is how, my friends, all things work for good, don't they? For us. I hope you believe it and you live by that. Even Job's suffering <laughs> was for good. He said to himself, he said, when God has tested me, I shall come forth as pure gold. He said in chapter 23 and verse 10, even Paul in Romans says, we don't only rejoice in our, our justification, but he says, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know the benefits that sufferings bring. Read Romans 3, 3 to 5. So we've been talking about the church. What is the church? The church is not a building. This is not the church, although we tend to call it that. Uh, church is not an organisation like Baptist, you know, the Baptist church. And nor is the church all who call themselves Christians as opposed to those who call themselves by another religion. And certainly the church in Britain and not the 45% or so of people who identify themselves as Christians as opposed to something else in our country. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 1 of Ephesians, the very chapter we're in, you can learn what the church is. The church is a special kind of people. People called the saints who are in Ephesus in verse 1 of chapter 1. A saint is just another word for a holy person, but it doesn't first of all describe the quality of your life. Not first of all. First of all, a saint, a holy person, is one who has been called by God and set apart 
for God and for his use. That's why in the Old Testament there were certain people who were clearly not holy in living, but they are called holy. Priests, for example, because they've been called by God to a certain work. Many of them were unfaithful. That's why an object, a piece of furniture could be called holy. If this was the Old Testament temple and uh, you've got this here, this would be a holy pulpit. Why? Because its use is not outside in the world, but it's for use by God in his temple. And that's who we are as Christians. We've been set apart from the world, from sin, to be devoted to God. And the second description in verse 1, they are faithful in Christ Jesus. That means they continue, having begun, to put their faith in Jesus Christ. They continue to live as Christians devoted to God. That's what the church is made up of. Or we can say, the church is made up of those who submit to Jesus Christ. Again, this letter, chapter 5 and verse 24, is talking about uh, wives and husbands. But he says in verse 24 of chapter 5, now as the church submits to Christ. If you're in the church, you joyfully, willingly, universally seek to submit to Christ as your Lord. Verse 25 says, You are loved by Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And Christ loves you with the purpose of making you holy, now in the sense of pure, making you like himself perfectly, which you are not yet. And so he goes on to say, verse 27, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I want you to see a woman. She joyfully does whatever a certain man wants. This woman, all her needs are met by that man. And she seeks to present herself beautifully before him. Who have I described? What I've described a wife, according to the Bible, haven't I? But I've described using that language of your relationship to Christ, if you're a Christian, if you're part of the church. So how do you become part of the church? Because that's what's so important here this morning. You can hear everything about Christ doing things for the sake of the church, but if you're not part of the church... It's not a blessing to you. You're not part of it. Well, how does a, a woman, 
join herself in marriage to a man. Well, she's attracted to him. And you become attracted to Christ. You see in Christ the one you need, the Savior to save you from your sins, your ruler and defender to lead you in your life. You see the beauty, the glory of his character, and he's the one you desire. That's how you become joined to Jesus Christ. But more than that, the Lord Jesus himself comes to you, even this morning. And he tells you, come to me. He makes advances, if I may use the language, to you. Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. That's what he's saying to you this morning in the gospel. That's how you become a Christian. You know that though you're unworthy, and though in that sense you wouldn't dare to come before him because of his glory, you have the courage to come to him because he's invited you to come and know all the blessings that he desires to give to sinners. Now, I speak to those of you who are not in the church in this sense. I ask you, is there anyone more beautiful and glorious than the Lord Jesus Christ, that you wouldn't want to come to him? What do you find objectionable in him? Is there any flaw in his character? Is there anything he lacks? Can he not do what he says he's going to do? And he invites you to himself. Come to him that you may know union with him and be in his church and know that everything he does is for the sake of his church. And so then the third thing I want to say this morning is Christ does this because the church is very precious to him. We've just talked about the preciousness of Christ to us, but let's talk now about the preciousness of the church to Christ. How is the church described here in verse 23? It's his body. It's a very common phrase uh, in this letter, actually, to describe the church, let's just read one or two verses. Chapter 4, verse 4. There's one body, referring to the church. Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That's why God has given teachers uh, in the church that the body of Christ might be built up. Verse 16. Here, uh, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
Or chapter 5 and verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And finally, verse 30 of chapter 5. We are members of his body. It's such an important figure, symbol of what the church is. How precious is your body to you? Did you look after it this morning? Of course you did. You did everything necessary in terms of cleanliness and uh, nutrition and protection because of how uh, precious that body is for you. And the Lord Jesus Christ, and by this figure of the body, has <clears throat> indissolubly joined the church to himself. Because what happens to the body reflects on him as the head. Just as the way your body is presented publicly reflects on you as a person. The Lord Jesus must save all the elect for whom he died because they're his body <laughs> he must keep them he must raise them up on the last day I'm quoting from John 6 they must be with him in glory otherwise if I may coin the phrase he will be bodiless they must be there so the Lord Jesus exercises his illimitable power on our behalf. He subjects the entire universe to himself, whether it likes it or not, if we may say, for the sake of us, who are so precious to him. He will have us in glory, like him and with him. But there's one other phrase in verse 23. The church is called the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's of Christ. It's the fullness of Christ. Christ fills the church. There have been a few different interpretations here, but I think the one that best fits the context is this one. It's Christ himself who is the fullness of the church because the whole emphasis here is on what Christ is to the church. What is he to the church? He's the fullness of the church. Let's use the example in the Old Testament. There when the tabernacle was built at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, a glory cloud the Shekinah glory filled the temple. It was a symbol of God's glorious presence. There the cloud filled the residence of God, the, the, the tabernacle, the temple of the Old Testament. And so Christ, who is the glory of God, he fills the church, not by a cloud now, but by his spirit. 
That's an incredible thought, isn't it? Where does our Lord Jesus Christ delight to be and delight to manifest his glory amongst the saints, amongst his people? Where two or three, that's small, <laughs> where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am. And that surely points to a special presence. No matter how small we are, when we gather in his name to worship him, there he is. So how amazing then, isn't it, that this one who fills all in all, the end of verse 23, he finds... Uh, the fullness, or we find the fullness of his manifestation in the church. In other words, he fills the church. Remember, it's not the building. It's us as the people of God. He fills the church in a way he doesn't fill other things. You can get the difference, can't you, when uh, a loving husband is present in the home and the, the wife and the children love to be with him there's a glory and a joy in that presence but you can see the difference you're on the parade ground in the military and there's the major he's with his troops but the, the being with is quite different, isn't it? On the parade ground from having that uh, beautiful uh, relationship in the home. Because the glory of Christ is not simply his power, his wisdom. Oh, that is there. That, that is glorious. But it's his grace. It's his love for us, his giving himself for us in his death but even now as our great high priest in heaven he's always for us on our behalf all he's doing is for our benefit that we might reach glory so I want to plead with those of you here I don't know who you are because I'm a visitor here. But you say you're a Christian. You say you're saved. But to judge by your life, you're not very interested in the church, in Christ's church. And I want to plead with you that if you've heard what I've been speaking to you, if you've seen what the scripture says Make the church, make this expression of the church, this local church as we call it, make it the very centre of your life. Because if I may put it this way, it is the centre of Christ's life, isn't it? And whatever changes you need to make today, you make them. Because not only Christ, but 
God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are totally committed to the church. And then, if Christ loves the church and has all power, we started in a very melancholic fashion, didn't we? With how the fortunes of the external professing church look like they're on a downward spiral and they're already predicting, aren't they, that certain denominations in Britain will cease to be by the year 2050 if the rate of decline goes on. That's not his church, is it? <laughs> this is the absolute assurance of the triumph of the church. The gates of hell will not prevail. They will not be able to resist the progress of the gospel. And if we're not very encouraged here, there are plenty of places in the world to be encouraged by I would say, why should God show his grace here? Well, because he's gracious. But there's every reason why God should wash his hands of us. But thank God he doesn't do that even. But let's rejoice when we hear in other parts of the world where he's pouring out his spirit in ways in which he's poured out his spirit here in the past and to encourage us, he may well do it in the future. But let's be encouraged that the church will triumph. So, churches such as Maiden Bar Baptist Church are far from perfect. When you come here, you find some good things, and I'm sure you find certain things which are lacking that need strengthening. But if you're not with God's people in all their struggles, sitting under the word of God, seeking to encourage one another to continue in the fight of the faith, then you're missing the glory of Christ, whose fullness is in the church. Under the old covenant, in the Old Testament, you can read it in the Psalms. When God's people were away from his worship, when David was in the land of the Philistines, for example, oh, how he groaned, how he said, the, the birds that fly around the altar, how blessed they are, those priests who ever serve in God's temple, oh, what a privilege they have. If the Old Testament saints could do that, for a physical structure, a, a symbolic worship. How much more should we, when we have the new covenant, we have all the spiritual blessings in Christ that God has for us, when God manifests his presence in the midst of his people? So I leave you with this question. If the Saviour delights to be with his people, why don't you delight to be with the people of God? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this 
incredible encouragement that you've given us this morning. Some of us especially, we're prone to be dejected, to always see the difficulties and the failures and the demise even of churches and there's truth in those things. But Lord, please lift our spirits this morning. Forgive our sins that we've not been looking upon you and your glory and your presence in our midst, even if we are relatively few. And use this word, Lord, to encourage us to press on for that upward call of God in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.